0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So Tracy. Yeah. In October. In October we had kind of an interesting connection made. We did. Uh-huh. The office of the chief technology officer of the United States, that's Megan Smith, reached out to our podcast about a piece of history that has actually gone missing and kind of was interested in seeing if we wanted to talk about this piece of history and maybe collaborate a little bit. And of course we said, yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, my favorite we'll talk- part of this was that we got, we got the, the ping on Twitter and you texted me about it within minutes. While I was sitting on my couch doing nothing, you were like, hey, listen to this excitement. It's Cool.
0: So, of course, we wanted to collaborate with Megan and her team and help raise some awareness. And what really got me excited is that uh, there is also a call to rally our listeners to help with this little problem. And we're going to tell you more about how you can get involved at the end of the episode. But first... What we're actually going to talk about today is the very early stages of the women's rights movement in the United States.
1: Yeah, we are coincidentally on a suffrage series driven in part by this visit that Holly made to the White House. Uh, and in my case, the much more boring explanation of when the library books showed up from interlibrary loan.
0: <laughs> That's still very valid, though. So we're going to cover uh, today a little bit of biographical information about a couple of the key players germane to this particular slice of that history that we're focusing on. And then we're going to talk about the first Women's Rights Convention. And we'll also discuss this document that was written for the event called the Declaration of Sentiments. And we'll hear from the U.S. CTO, Megan Smith, who I referenced a moment ago, about what happened to that document.
1: So we're going to start by talking a little bit about Lucretia Mott. And she was born Lucretia Coffin in Nantucket, Massachusetts, on January 3rd of 1793. She had seven siblings.
0: When she was 13, Lucretia went to a Quaker boarding school in New York State called Nine Partners. And she actually stayed there for a long time of her life. She stayed there after she finished her studies as a teaching assistant when she had graduated.
1: Lucretia often attended lectures by speakers who visited the school, and it was through these events that she became aware of the plight of enslaved Africans and also the abolitionist movement. She also learned while at the school that the women teachers were earning less money than the men who taught there. And as she learned more and more about the various injustices of the, the society that she was living in, she became more and more resolved to do something about it. So Mott became a well-known anti-slavery speaker and a Quaker minister by the 1820s.
0: And Lucretia had met uh the man who had become her husband, James Mott, while she was working at the Quaker school. The pair married in 1811, and they set up their household in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh James and Lucretia had six children, though one of them died in childhood. And there's not a ton of like when you look at her biographical info, they don't really list out the kids and their ages as often as happens with some of the other women in this movement. But we do know that she had six. They did not all survive. Uh, Five of them, though, did live into adulthood. In
1: 1833, Mott was a pivotal member of the group of women who organized the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. Her work there cemented her place as an abolitionist leader. And in 1840, she traveled to London to serve as a delegate from the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society to the World Anti-Slavery Convention.
0: And now we're going to shift gears for a moment. And talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I have also heard it pronounced Elizabeth Caddy Stanton. Uh, I don't know which is correct. I watched a ton of videos and I mostly heard Cady, but I also heard Caddy in a couple places. So my apologies first, uh, if that rankles anybody one way or the other, but that, we're going to go with Cady just because that's the way I always heard it growing up and it's more natural. Uh, Elizabeth Cady was born in Johnstown, New York on November 12th of 1815. Her mother was Margaret Livingston Cady, and her father, Daniel Cady, was a lawyer, a judge, and a speculator. And he was also a man who, if he had his druthers, would have had only sons. And that was something that he never really made any
1: effort to hide. Although she was not a male child, Elizabeth was educated as one. And it, she made it her habit to work really hard to shine in areas of study that had traditionally been associated with boys rather than girls. She attended a local boys' school in Johnstown and studied Latin, Greek, religion, and sciences right alongside her male counterparts, often outperforming them academically.
0: Despite her excellent academic record, she could not attend the same college as the young men in her graduating class, simply because she was a woman. And so she enrolled in the Troy Female Seminary in New York. She graduated from that school in 1832 at the age of 17.
1: When Elizabeth met Henry Brewster Stanton at her cousin Garrett Smith's home in Peterborough, New York, Stanton was already deeply involved in the abolition movement. Their romance was not appreciated by Elizabeth's father, who was a Federalist. Just the same, and against her family's wishes, Elizabeth and Henry were married on May 1st, 1840. Famously... Elizabeth had the phrase to obey omitted from the traditional list of promises a bride makes to her husband in the course of the marriage ceremony.
0: Yeah, that one uh, always strikes me. I've read it before and even reading it, doing research for this episode, because I've known brides in the recent past who have still had to make it clear to the officiants at their ceremonies that the obey language had to be dropped.
1: We actually just met with our officiant on this past weekend. Uh, and the two things we said really, we don't want to write our own vows. We, I'm also not saying anything about obeying. And that, I mean, it was not necessary for me to say that for our officiant in particular. She comes from a very progressive denomination, uh. But she said that she has had people who have specifically asked her to have that in there. How? Odd. I mean, whatever, whatever you want to do, it's your choice. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> but I was like, really?
0: <laughs> When my best friend got married, and this is a long time ago, because she and I got married very close to each other in time period, she, her officiant at the last minute had to step out. I don't remember the circumstances, but they luckily had another person that was like a friend of one of her parents' co-workers that was able to do it, and he was very sweet, but she had made very clear that she would not be saying obey, and all he did was substitute out the word serve. Like, he didn't understand. Oh, dear! But he he was so sweet, but there was this beautiful, awkward moment in the middle of the ceremony where we all just went. Oh, what's what's she gonna do? But she was she just kind of laughed and said it and kept going. But it was it's very funny. But it strikes me as odd that this was something that people were thinking about in the 1840s, and yet still in the 20th and 21st century, people are still having these discussions, and it is not always clear why that sentiment would not want to be there, but. Right There you go. Uh, so for their honeymoon, though, the newlywed Stantons went to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. That same one that Lucretia Mott was going to. Henry represented the American Anti-Slavery Society as a delegate. But there was a problem when they arrived because women attendees were initially not granted entry into the event because they were not men. This led to a lengthy and heated discussion of the matter among the delegates. And eventually women were given access, but they had to sit in the back of the hall and they weren't allowed to participate in any way. They were only granted access to observe.
1: And so in 1840, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton met for the first time at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London in this newly designated women's section. And both of them were quite furious about it.
0: They made fast friends in their mutual uh, indignation over this situation, and they agreed that once they had returned to the U.S., they should set up a women's convention as soon as possible. Uh, the goal of that gathering was going to be discussion about the injustices that women were constantly suffering, similar to the ones they had just gone through at this convention that was supposed to be about equality and progressive thinking.
1: Well, and I feel like this is a good point or a good moment to point out that even though this was running in a lot of ways in parallel with the abolition movement, and there are a lot of overlap and the characters there. At the same time, it's a very valid criticism that some of the same short-sightedness was affecting the women who were leading this movement. It was, a, a, in a lot of ways, focused mostly on educated middle-class and upper-class white women, when there were actually a lot more women in the United States than just them. Yes, absolutely. So, after the convention in London concluded... The Stantons came back to the United States, and they lived for a little while in Johnstown. Henry studied law with Elizabeth's father until he passed the bar, and then the two of them moved to Albany, New York, and then to Boston, Massachusetts. For a while, Henry practiced law, and he and Elizabeth grew their family. They had a son named Daniel Katie Stanton in 1842, and then two years later, they had another boy, Henry Brewster Stanton, Jr. In 1845, Garrett Smith Stanton was born. And Henry and Elizabeth would eventually have four more children. Theodore Weld Stanton in 1851, Margaret Livingston Stanton in 1852, Harriet Eaton Stanton in 1856, and Robert Livingston Stanton in 1859.
0: And I I wanted to make a brief aside that one of the reasons that Henry agreed to go study law under Elizabeth's father was kind of like to acquiesce a little bit and be like, hey, I know you don't always like my politics, but I do want to be a good son-in-law and I do want to support your daughter and, you know, give her a good life. And so he kind of agreed to study law along those lines. And also it was, you know, a good way to make a living. But in 1847, Henry's health was really suffering. And so the decision was made that they were going to move to Seneca Falls, New York, in the hopes that a change in environment would revive him a little bit. And Elizabeth's father owned a house there at 32 Washington Street, and he transferred that house and the property it was attached to over to his daughter. He basically gave them this new home to live in.
1: This change of scenery was really difficult for Elizabeth, though. She didn't have her network of friends and fellow activists anymore, and her life was really pared down to just taking care of the kids. She and Henry had seven, uh, and also in managing housework. To Elizabeth, this was not a life she could sustain with any sort of happiness. She wrote of this time, quote, my duties were too numerous and varied and not sufficiently exhilarating or intellectual to bring into play my higher faculties. I suffered with mental hunger, which like an empty stomach is very depressing.
0: On July 9th of 1848, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was at a gathering at the home of Jane and Richard Hunt in Waterloo. And also at that same gathering, this was, it's often characterized as a tea, but the ladies were really there for the majority of the day. Uh, was Lucretia Mott, Mary Ann McClintock, Martha Wright, and of course Jane Hunt, the the uh, lady of the house. And Elizabeth had grown increasingly frustrated with the restrictions of a woman's role at the time, and she was sharing this chagrin with her friends, and really kind of complaining about feeling very trapped and and very just frustrated at at the life she was forced into. And all of the women there really shared in the same experience. They all had been working on the issue of abolition and temperance, and they all had families, and they all had experienced discrimination. So this was definitely like a, a preaching to the choir situation.
1: As the women discussed the problem of how to address their frustrations at always being placed below men, they had the idea of a women's convention, which had first been agreed upon between Mott and Stanton eight years earlier. This really gained the center stage in their conversation. They decided they would call it a women's rights convention, and the ball was soon rolling. And the
0: first women's rights convention was scheduled for a mere 10 days later. It blows
1: my mind that it was only 10 days between having the idea and scheduling the thing. Like, we live in a world where we are scheduling events that are happening in March, and we are recording this in November.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's very... Uh... Fascinating, but also exciting. I can't, I would be terrified to put an event together. But before we get into the convention and kind of how they got everyone informed that it was even happening, we're gonna pause for a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. This is timely. It's a holiday message. The holidays are almost here. So,
1: so scared. See, I'm stammering. That's how scared I right?
0: am. Right? I'm like, uh, we got a phone call from a relative last night about Presence and I just wanted to go. We're skipping it. I don't. Uh, we probably won't. But uh, the bottom line is, we're all busy and stressed, and adding like a layer of stress and busyness by trying to carve out time to go to the post office and ship things is utter misery. Don't do it. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself the gift of time. Uh, don't go to the post office. You have to deal with traffic and parking and other people that are stressed and freaking out. Just use stamps.com instead. You will thank yourself and life will be easier. With stamps.com, you can avoid all of that hassle. Don't go to the post office during the holiday season unless you really have to or you really like someone there. Uh, because everything you would do at the post office, you can do right there at home at your desk. Just buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. It's so much easier. You can print postage for any letter or package right when you need it. And then you just hand that off to your friendly mail carrier and it is easy and convenient. Right now, you can use our special promo code, which is STUFF, so that when you go to Stamps.com, you will get a special offer, giving you a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That's going to include some postage as well as a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF.
1: That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. On July 14th, 1848, the following announcement ran in the Seneca County Courier. Women's Rights Convention, a convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women will be held in the Wesleyan Chapel at Seneca Falls, New York on Wednesday and Thursday, the 19th and 20th of July current, commencing at 10 o'clock a.m. During the first day, the meeting will be exclusively for women, which are, which all are earnestly invited to attend. The public generally are invited to be present on the second day when Lucretia Mott of Philadelphia and others, both ladies and gentlemen, will address the convention.
0: So remember that at this point Lucretia Mott really did have a fairly significant uh, name as being a really amazing orator, so it made sense that she was the one that they picked to kind of include in their, their call to action copy. And this same copy ran in multiple places, starting on July 11th and running for several days, including Frederick Douglass's paper, The North Star. Douglas was also invited to the convention by Elizabeth McClintock, and that was an invitation to which he replied, quote, to be sure I will do myself the pleasure of accepting your kind invitation to attend the proposed women's convention at Seneca Falls.
1: In addition to the announcement in the papers, the ladies mobilized their connections within the abolitionist and social reform communities to try to spread the word.
0: And in the days leading up to the event, Elizabeth Cady Stanton drafted a document modeled on the Declaration of Independence calling for women's rights. It was called the Declaration of Sentiments, and it outlined the ways in which women had been treated unjustly and called for an organized movement to reclaim rights.
1: The Declaration of Sentiments included 18 injuries and usurpations to women. There were also 11 resolutions to accompany the Declaration.
0: And so when July 19th arrived, 200 or 300, depending on the source you read, people convened at the Wesleyan Chapel. Lucretia Mott's husband, James, presided over the meeting. Mary McClintock was appointed secretary of the meeting. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton stated the purpose of the meeting. And then Lucretia Mott made opening remarks.
1: Stanton read the Declaration of Sentiments, and then after a proposition was introduced to do so, it was read again, section by section, with discussion after each piece. In some cases, changes were made to it based on that discussion.
0: The attendants then had further lively discussion about whether men should sign the Declaration as well as women. And while eventually the group did vote in favor of this idea, the final decision was actually tabled for the following day, since the men would be there at that time. And so the morning session at this point was adjourned until the afternoon.
1: When the group reassembled for the second half of the day, the amended version of the Declaration of Sentiments was read. The document was approved by vote and then circulated for signatures. And then the 11 resolutions were read. The ninth of these was the most
0: controversial. It called for voting rights for women. And while all of the other resolutions passed unanimously on the second day of the convention, this one really met with some resistance. It was simply too radical for some of the women there, but others passionately asserted the need for it. And eventually it did pass with a majority, but not with unanimity.
1: One of the things that is interesting to me about that is that uh, we're not quite sure what order these episodes are going to come out in, but this episode and our Catherine Dexter McCormick episode are are happening near one another. Uh, and so during this episode, it, the idea of women, women voting was a little too radical. And then we move ahead in time a little bit with Catherine Dexter McCormick. And at that point, voting was what pretty much all the women's rights activists were all on board for, contraception had become the thing that was too radical.
0: Yeah, it's always interesting to see how, uh, you know, movements shift and what what is initially thought of as as really like too far. We're going too far with this and kind of garners some negative attention eventually gets superseded by something else. And it's just a fascinating kind of ebb and flow to watch.
1: Yeah, so if either remember the Catherine Dexter McCormick episode, you've already heard or look forward to it, depending on how we eventually run these. Also amid all these speeches on the second day was an address by Frederick Douglass supporting the women's cause. By the time the convention had closed, 68 women and 32 men had signed the Declaration of Sentiments.
0: And of course, this event made waves. The press kind of skewered the effort, and uh, many less enlightened folks kind of preached the danger of letting women achieve equality. In reaction to all of this furor, Frederick Douglass wrote, quote, A discussion of the rights of animals would be regarded with far more complacency by many of what are called the wise and good of our land than would be a discussion of the rights of women.
1: I'm so frustrated because it's the same situation today, not just for women. <laughs> For women, <laughs> yeah. for people of color, like there are a lot of we're having the same conversations so much later. Anyway, uh, at the same time, the first women's rights convention had just happened. And regardless of what, how it was received by the public and because of the outrage, the declaration of sentiments gained a lot of attention that it might not have received otherwise.
0: Yeah, there was one uh, write up that I was reading that was suggesting that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was kind of an early adopter without this exact phrase of like, you know, no press is bad press. She's like, well, they're they're talking about it in all the papers, so more and more women are going to hear about this. So I guess it's not all that bad. Uh, I do want to take a moment and talk a little bit about how history is sometimes framed, because there's been a lot of discussion, particularly around this convention and the sentiments in the beginning of the women's rights movement in the last year or so. Uh, One thing I want to point out is that sometimes you will hear people loop in Susan B. Anthony as having been present for this convention, she was not. That information is not correct. Uh, while she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton would work closely together in the fight for women's rights in the 1850s and beyond, they actually had not even met in 1848. They didn't meet until 1851. So she sometimes kind of gets backwards engineered into it, but she wasn't actually there.
1: In her 2014 book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, author Lisa Tetrault asserts that in some ways, the importance of the Seneca Falls Convention was kind of backwards engineered by women's rights activists when the movement reformed after it paused during the Civil War.
0: And Trot's book really suggests that both Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony kind of leveraged information about the Seneca Falls Convention to achieve two ends. And she makes it clear that it, it's not fabrication, but the way they framed it really kind of sets up these two things. One, they used it to dismiss the American Women's Suffrage Association by indicating that they had... They, meaning Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, had been much more a part of the start of the movement. And that validated their group, which was the National Women's Suffrage Association, over that competing group. And two, that it cemented their own positions and influence within the women's movement to kind of indicate that they had been there from the beginning.
1: This is another reason why it's really cool that we're coincidentally doing this episode and one on Catherine Dexter McCormick at the same time, because you can see ahead in time a little bit. Continuing disputes between different organizations working toward the same ends, which is the case in a lot of social movements. But like that did not go away with these particular groups. Yeah. So because this is still a really new book and it's a great new take on women's history, it's been discussed a whole lot at the moment and it is worth a read. There's a lot of really impressive research in it.
0: We are going to next share an interview segment about the Declaration of Sentiments that I'm really, really excited about. But before we get into that, because it's really wonderful and I want it to stand all on its own without interruption, uh, let's pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
1: As the first official women's rights document on record in the United States, the Declaration of Sentiments is incredibly important. So where did it end up? Like the actual piece of paper that they worked on. Uh, that's actually a bit of a problem. But instead of telling you about it ourselves, we're going to let Megan Smith, who's the United States Chief Technology Officer, explain things.
0: I was fortunate enough to get to speak with Megan while visiting Washington, D.C. recently. And we talked a lot about the importance of women's history and Megan's interest in the Declaration of Sentiments, specifically, which actually led to the discovery. that No one is entirely sure where the original document actually is. So let's jump into that conversation. So here's the big question right out of the gate. What compelled you to go looking for the Declaration of Sentiments in the first place?
2: Right. So I think, you know, there's this amazing Churchill quote, which is, the further back you can look, the farther forward you will see. And so as U.S. Chief Technology Officer, I'm trying to help us with the future, with the economy, with empowering Americans, and uh, all the things that it takes to unlock the potential Mm -hmm. of all American people and people around the world to do their thing. And one of the things that's interesting is to look at the challenges that we've had in coming to the table, in this case, women's rights and the challenges women face, especially in science, technology, engineering, math. Why is it that there's so few of us proportionally? And yet if you look into history, you find astonishing things like uh, Grace Hopper, the rear admiral in the Navy who invented coding languages, the idea of a translator or a compiler that takes this machine code from your Englishy Java or whatever it is. So she's the creator of that. She's an Edison-level American. Why doesn't everyone know her name? Or Ada Lovelace from England who invented the idea of algorithms. Or Katherine Johnson, the African-American woman who calculated the trajectories for Ellen Shepard, first American space, John Glenn, first American around, and the Apollo mission. You know, in the Apollo movies, we never see a technical, mathematical, elite African-American woman. We need to know these stories Because in knowing them, they know that even if we weren't proportionally there, we were always there at the elite level contributing. And this story is about civil rights, which is interesting.
0: Well, and at what point did you realize it was actually
2: missing? Yeah, so when I first got here, um, I asked uh, Ayrith, the archivist of the United States, David Ferriero, who's tremendous, whether he had it. And he said he would go look for it through the archives, but he said, this, it, because it was not originally a federal document, we might, we might not have it. Um, and also the timing of when archives was founded. They have some things, but they were founded later. So he put out an all-call, and he was not finding it. I have a great uh, email from Arthur here that says, uh, uh, still on it. So uh, here you he see, still on it, AOTIS. <laughs> He's like trying to find it. And this is a really great piece. So, you know, the Declaration of Sentiments itself is the original document from Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls is where the very first women's rights convention occurred and happened to be in the United States. Um, And they gathered. I believe, actually, that Seneca Falls, because so much of abolition and women's rights were there, a lot because of the Erie Canal. You know, the commerce, like the Silk Road, is where not only goods are traveling, but ideas and conversation. So they were right on the canal, and they were part of that. So they called this convention. And so uh, David had sent over the original documents they found from the newspaper call that went in. And he said that uh, they found the table on which it was written, and they found several other things, a pamphlet that was typeset from around the time, but not the document. And so we called Seneca Falls. We called different people. In Seneca Falls, they don't know where it is. They think it may be lost The time. Their theory is that Frederick Douglass, who attended the convention, right. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the original woman who person who wrote uh, the Declaration of Sentiments. It's it's written based on the Declaration of Independence. So it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, and then it gets into the sentiments. But we have the content because we think uh, the source is Frederick Douglass. He, of course, was an incredible uh, writer, printer. He printed the Northern Star. Yeah. And so we think he took it to Rochester because it is printed in the Northern Star. And one of the clues we received from this great guy named Mark says he actually has a copy um, of the original. He thinks there's only two that exist. The original Northern Star on page one with the declaration on it. It also reports, he says, on the Rochester Women's Convention, which was the second one, And he said, interestingly, he had not seen the Northern Star in 22 years of collecting until he finally got a hold of these. So really exciting stuff to find, not only just in terms of the history of Frederick Douglass, who's such an amazing American, but... Uh, this particular history.
0: Well, and it's interesting that you talk about the find because your team has come up with a really ingenious way to both leverage social media and engage the public in their own sort of uh, efforts to help find it. Can you talk a little bit about this amazing project?
2: Yeah, so as I was working with the archivist, uh, I mentioned this to one of my colleagues here, uh, Lindsay Holst, who works in the Office of Digital Strategy for the President, and uh, she and I had already collaborated on something called the Untold Stories, mm-hmm of women in science and technology, which you can find on the White House website. And it's different administration women talking about heroes uh, that they have. Um, So uh, the administrator for the EPA uh, is talking about Rachel Carson, the incredible environmentalist. So just really wonderful NASA leadership talking about their heroes, Sally Ride and others. So we had done that work, and I mentioned this to Lindsay, and she's like, we need a treasure hunt. And so we launched this treasure hunt in kind of a Nicolas Cage style Uh, to to see if we could engage everyone. Because what we really need is for people to know the content of the Declaration of Sentiments because it's one of the most comprehensive documents ever written about equality uh, for women. And so the sentiments themselves are striking. And when the Washington Post covered our treasure hunt, they pulled some of the sentiments. One of them, they noted, uh, was very much about equal pay, which we struggle with today. You know, 79% and around the world uh, for their challenges. So you kind of look at Elizabeth Cady Stanton wanted to go to university. She wasn't allowed. So, you know, it's asking for rights to go to school, which is not unlike Malala Yousafzai. So we have the same reality. If you look at each of the sentiments, you could kind of almost redline them and say, how are we in the United States? How are we in in different countries?
0: So... How long do you think the Find the Sentiments project will go on? Is this planted as a long-term thing, or do you have an end date attached to it?
2: We're going to keep looking until we find more and more things. What's been really fun is to not only be looking for this, the sentiments, the Declaration itself, but all the other things that are surfacing. Uh, the Sewell Belmont House here is uh, a wonderful house that's really the, the final home of the National Women's Party. For women's suffrage, there was, of course, the National Women's Suffrage Party that was founded by Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and others. Uh, Alice Paul later added the National Women's Party with a federal strategy. So there was a state and a federal strategy working together. Um, So apparently there's a flag that's missing, this beautiful flag, where every time a state would ratify the 19th Amendment, they would sew on another star. And so at the very end, there's a picture of her with the flag standing on the balcony, And there she is, you know, Alice Paul, who was the first woman, the first person in the history of our country to figure out to protest the White House were the suffragettes. So this is her federal strategy, leadership, Mary Church Terrell, founder of the Deltas, uh, and and this group together doing this work. I would love to find that flag. And the Sue folks have been looking for it for a long time. There's also a pin that um, there's a movie right now called Suffragette uh, about the British women. Um, What happened was in... um, Parliament recently released some testimony from 1912 of the women who lived in the tenements, this particular group that worked in uh, the laundry. And it's true stories. It's based on true stories of their testimony in Parliament trying to get the vote, secure the vote based on their lives, together with surveillance that was going on from the police. And so the story of the film suffragette ensues from there. And it's, it's uh, led uh, uh, – Emmeline Pankhurst is played by Meryl Streep. And so she has a short part of – But the film itself is about the foot soldiers, they call it. And so Alice Paul was actually in England in those times and then came back and was part of this federal strategy. So at the time, they were sent to jail a lot for fighting for the vote. And they created a pin in England uh, that's a jail door. And so Alice, when she came back and began this idea of protesting the White House, every time they went to jail, she she eventually got a a beautiful pin. Uh, that we're trying to get a 3-D printing model from our youth to make anyone be able to print them, um, that, that any woman who went to jail, hundreds of women who went to jail, uh, there was a terrible night on the ninth, I think it's the 14th of November, called the Night of Terror, when they were beaten very badly, uh, but often force-fed because they would go in hunger, strike. just brutal. Um, and it's some of that uh, fighting that turned the tide as the reporting came out. And so they would wear this jailed outdoor pin. So we're looking for those. We have a few of them. And we have, of course the design that Alice made.
0: Do you think like what are your odds? Do you think on finding the Declaration of Sentiments?
2: I don't know. I'm hopeful. I'm a card-carrying optimist. I feel like so, it's got to be
0: in some like a box in someone's somewhere. attic somewhere that their nana put away. Like
2: we're hoping. No, uh, there was a fire in Frederick Douglass's home at one point, yeah. so there's a chance it's lost to that. But hopefully it's somewhere. There's also some tracks. Like one of the emails said. That Douglas traveled with the Waterloo Party, which is the next town to Seneca Falls. um, That maybe there's a woman who was making gloves who became a printer. Maybe she has the original and sent another copy. Who knows? Who knows what happened? But it's a wonderful story to be tracking. It's also causing us to note the different archives. So, for example, um, at Harvard, the Radcliffe Library um, has an extraordinary amount of collection material. Pennsylvania, Sewell Belmont, the Library of Congress, all of, of course, the the women's Say the, the women's studies programs right. across the United States, across the world, um, often sort of ghettoized a little bit as not relevant across. And so it's exciting to see the lifting of the stories of all women.
0: Are um, they States. working to develop like a comprehensive database of what they all have?
2: We're reaching out to all of them and see if we can kind of create a gathering. We're, you know, on our way to, to the Women's Equality, uh, whatever, it, the, our twi- in, uh, in what, five years, we're five years out, right, for celebrating that centennial. So, you know, can we get together and see what we want to do and at the history? And also from a digital perspective, what kind of edit-a-thons can we do? I was looking at uh, Queen Victoria versus Napoleon's uh, Wikipedia pages, and I did a word <laughs> kit on them. Victoria's half the size of Napoleon. Now, Napoleon we love to look at because of his, his military strategy. So there's a lot of detail in there, so that may be part of it. But I think both of them were complicated historic leaders that deserve equal length.
0: Well, Victoria is one of my favorite people, and I carry her picture, so you're speaking my language.
2: <laughs> um, but but these edit a that we could do to make sure that yeah. Wikipedia and our online archives are really carrying the history of everybody because, like the church quote, it's so important to know your history yeah. in order to know your future, and especially for young women today, young people of color who sometimes are coming up against not so much overt bias anymore but institutional or unconscious bias. It's very confusing. Why is this happening to me? And if you don't know the history of what's gone on and what we've all worked together as humanity to get to, you don't really understand why you're not getting heard in a meeting or you're not getting promoted, you're not getting these things, and it's because we're still in a continuum to getting to full equality for everyone.
0: Have there been any surprises? I know it's still in its infancy in terms of getting like public involvement in it, but have you had any surprises along the way where people have brought something to your attention?
2: Yeah, I, I'm just excited by all the enthusiasm, and uh, just people are looking for it all around. We've done some radio shows. We're working with you guys. It's yeah. really exciting to see people wanting to know, because it's, it's a great uh, history that we have, you know, in the Americans on which, you know, we stand on their shoulders that have built this country and, you know, from our founders to these different leaders throughout civil so rights. It's exciting to see Treasury, for example, yeah. uh, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, together with the Treasurer of the U.S. are working together to bring women to money and make sure those stories are told. And so they have the hashtag, the new 10. They've gotten over 300 uh, women recommended, which is exciting because now we're working uh, with the textbook folks. And saying, you know, are all 300 of these people who seem to have crowdsourced, surfaced that of our consciousness as important, are they all in our textbooks? Do the kids know about these, all the people who have built this country together? That's so
0: cool. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating to me, and you brought it up, or you touched on it briefly, mentioning Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. is that even when people do talk about this, which they don't often enough, Mm -hmm. uh, the Declaration of Sentiments, it's kind of couched just as a a women's document. Mm -hmm. but there are like 68 women's signatures but there are 32 men that were also there and it's really not just a women's document it's everybody's history and impacts all of us. Is there, have you had any challenges or are you seeking out new ways to sort of frame that and get that point across that this is not just a women's issue but an everyone's history issue?
2: Yeah, I think actually we're seeing that across the globe Uh, you know, the United Nations just uh, ratified the Sustainable Development Goals and in the top level, the 17 goals that the world has set out for ourselves for the next 15 years, gender equality, is one of them. The deputy president of uh, South Africa uh, was just speaking at the Open Government Partnership uh, session at Mexico City, and he was talking about, for them, one of their primary uh, focuses is peace and security and gender emancipation. It was very interesting to hear him use that word, sort of this gender apartheid that still exists deep in our society. So, I think that um, working on these issues is coming to the forefront of all of our thinking. There's an incredible quote in the uh, Jefferson Memorial, and it says, "I I won't get exactly right. We'll we'll maybe put it in." It's, uh, "I'm not a fan of the frequent change of law." He says, uh, "But I do think that as the human mind advances, as we become more enlightened, we come to know new things and understand things." And you, you can't fit the coat You wore as a boy Just like ideas just don't work As those of our barbarous ancestors And I think that His language is really quite stunning And the use of barbarous ancestors I don't think they knew They right. were being barbarous uh, In creating slavery and inequality And all these horrific things That, that we live with On, on inequality And and uh, those those challenges that we face But as we wake up uh, we need to debug them. You know, we need to come and, and work together to get out of the problems. Even if we didn't create them, we inherit them. Yeah. And so gender equality, you know, racial equality, non-age discrimination, all these pieces, uh, socioeconomic, are a big part of the goals that the United Nations and the world has set for ourselves and the global goals, which include justice and equality and economic opportunity and being great to our planet and all of those pieces.
0: So, speaking of goals, when all of this is said and done, when you guys decide it's time to wrap the Declaration of Sentiments uh, search, whether we found it or not, like what do you really hope that people can take away from this having happened?
2: I think that we want, even if we can't find the physical document, we want the concept and the knowledge of the document and knowledge of its content. So many people, if you mention Seneca Falls, they maybe have heard of it. You know, President Obama often says from Seneca Falls to mm-hmm. Selma to Stonewall, you know, talking about the different moments, you know, whether it's from Philadelphia and independence all the way through these moments uh, in our country where we come to work on our equality and uh, the arc of justice, as, as he says, as King said. Um, so our hope is that we get this inclusion of all of us. And that documents like this and their deep content, the specific sentiments, when you read them, they're so comprehensive. Yeah. And we so are still working on all of them, you know, are there for us as a vision for where we want to be. And lastly, uh, where can people go to find out more and if they want to help with the search? Yeah, so hashtag find the sentiments on Twitter and then whitehouse.gov. Uh, find the sentiments with dashes between or just search and find us. And so learn more. And there we have a post that details mm-hmm. it. There's also a form that you can fill out and send us great information as you find it or put it up on Twitter with us, and we'll just keep looking together. And and we're interested not only in the Declaration of Sentiments but all the other kinds of things like the pin, the flag, any kind of thing that tells the story of women's civil rights, women's equality, or anybody's equality. We want to be standing that up and sharing that with each other.
0: I love it. Megan, thank you so much. This has been really amazing. Thank you. And I'm so excited to get people involved and get more hands on deck to be on the search. Yeah, we need everyone on this. Yeah, excellent. Thank
1: you so much. We will link to a copy of the Declaration of Sentiments in the show notes so you can read the whole thing for yourself. It was mentioned in the interview, but reading through the Declaration today really is eye-opening because a lot of the same exact points that it made are still being made and fought for today, 167 years later. One more time, that's 167 years later. So we hope that if you have any connection to the Seneca Falls
0: Convention, whether that's through family history or any other connection, like you purchased an antique that might have been of anything, just even if it seems nebulous, please share any information that you have on social media and use the hashtag find the sentiments. As Megan shared, whether we find the original declaration of sentiments or not, Odds are that there is a lot of history related to this convention that hasn't been properly documented. And you might be the one to have some of that. So if you want more information, you can actually go to the White House blog and do a search for Find the Sentiments, or honestly, if you if you just go into any search engine and type in Find the Sentiments or hashtag Find the Sentiments, it's going to lead you to this particular blog post that Megan wrote that explains the whole project and how they went on this search and how they have launched this initiative. And it also gives you a little form that you can fill out right there. But I will read out the URL, which is www.whitehouse.gov slash blog slash find the dash sentiments. And as I said, there's a great little form there, but you can also just go to social media and uh, post your thoughts and your information using hashtag find the sentiments. And we hope you do, because it's a wonderful way to get people involved in the historical discovery process. And, you know, they're really crowdsourcing a new chapter in sort of really fleshing out American history and specifically women's history. So it's a pretty cool way that you can contribute. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. This one is a really fun for me because it involves some science that I would not have known. Uh, it is in relation to our Mike Malloy episode and the uh, the title of the email. And I loved it the second I even saw it was why they didn't kill Mike Malloy at first. And it comes from our listener, Paul, who is a doctor. So he knows about these things. And he says, Holly and Tracy, by treating Mike Malloy to an open bar tab, the buffoon murderers were actually giving Mike the antidote to wood alcohol. Methanol poisoning. Until 2000, the standard treatment for methanol poisoning was actually to give ethanol by IV. Little did these fools realize that by getting Mike drunk on booze, ethanol first, they were protecting him from the toxic effects of methanol. Also, by running over Mike in a narrow tire vehicle, typical of the time, with snow on the ground, they probably broke a few ribs, but the snow actually cushioned Mike and the narrow tubular tire could do little damage. And as to how human beings could conspire to do such a thing, remember that 1933 was the year of Hitler's rise to power. So that's an interesting connection. Uh, but it is really cool. I certainly did not know about the treatment to methanol poisoning being ethanol. So that's a pretty fascinating little twist to that story that explains why he just kept going and going and going despite them filling him with Yeah,
1: and a couple of different people have written to us with that tidbit of knowledge.
0: It's very cool. I did not know. And now it's additional science in my mental library. Hopefully I will not lose it. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory, and at com. You can also find us on Instagram at History. If you would like to research a little bit more about uh, what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, parent site HowStuffWorks.com. Type in the word feminism or women's rights in the search bar, and you're going to get a lot of different articles. We'll have a lot of crossover as well with uh, the ladies from Stuff Mom Never Told You in those results. And there's just a great whole wealth of knowledge to explore. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, where we have all of our back episodes archived for you. We have show notes from the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, and occasionally other little goodies. So we encourage you to visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com.